Hey everyone, welcome to episode 46 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina and Baden-Württemberg, Germany, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I am Chris Castor-Apple, and with me, as always, is birthday boy, Collins Mullen. Hey Collins, happy birthday. Birthday boy. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Definitely wasn't expecting that, but it's true, it's my birthday today. You know I wouldn't forget. Yeah. Um, I'm doing pretty good. It's been a crazy week so far, and I'm sure just going to get crazier since we are about to head up to Roanoke, Virginia for the Star City Games Invitational. Yeah, yeah. Are you psyched for that? Pretty psyched. Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm sure we'll get, we'll get more into that later on in the podcast. Yeah, I know we have a bunch of uh, listeners going, so I wish I wish I were there. I'd love to come say hi to everybody, um, and also obviously play in the invitational. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we'll be missing it. Everybody else, I hope you have fun. Yeah, I'm super pumped. Uh, the invitational is probably my favorite tournament every year, just because I don't know the stakes feel pretty high, but it's like a tournament that you've earned, so it's free and all sorts of stuff. So it's it's great. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I've only got actually gotten the chance to play in one because I'd kind of taken a, a break from competitive magic for a while and then came back and played in one. It's definitely, it's a f- super fun experience. And playing in a split format tournament is always uh, an interesting experience. Yeah, true. So we are going to kind of mix things up a little bit in our uh, Patreon Discord. I've been trying to get some feedback on, you know, ways that that we can improve and sort of we, we want to make this show the best that it can possibly be and we definitely welcome any sort of feedback if you're a patron definitely come hang out in the discord and and tell us what you know what we're doing well at what we're kind of sucking at uh if you're not a patron you know hit us up on twitter or anything and and definitely you know let us know what works and, and doesn't work and we're trying to make the best product we possibly can so we're we're introducing some stuff we're gonna have a couple of recurring segments we're gonna start off with this uh mini segment of i think one of the the things that we can really offer and and the reason for this segment is something that we've we've talked about pretty regularly on this podcast which is the importance of mulligan decisions oh yes one of my favorite topics for sure (laughs) yeah (laughs) I've uh, I've been pretty opinionated on on mulliganing decisions, especially lately. So I think this will be a a good segment to talk more about that, and I guess more on our philosophy behind mulliganing and magic. Yeah, what we're gonna do is we're gonna do sort of a weekly keep our mull segment, and we're gonna take either something that's come up in discussion somewhere, or a, just a hand that we've stumbled on on Moto or something somebody sent us that has a you know, particularly interesting decision point. And the reason we're doing this is because mulligans, you know, doing them properly or, or the best that you can is, is one of the best ways, one of the most important ways to get percentage points in matchup, matchups. And one of the more difficult decisions you're going to make in any given game. So for this week, we thought we'd start out with an area of Collins's particular expertise. So this is a human's hand. And uh, you want to read this one out and, and start talking about it? Yeah, so this was actually posted on Twitter by CVM, I guess a week or so ago. 
And it's a it's a keeper mulligan on a on a human's hand that I think a lot of people would not really think twice about, but I think that there's probably more to this hand that um, is really kind of like insightful into kind of the philosophy of mulligan specifically with the human stack. So the hand is it's got two lands, Cavern of Souls and Ancient Ziggurat, and then it has four two-drop creatures. It has a Thalia, it has a Kite Self Freebooter, it has a Thalia's Lieutenant, and it has a Meddling Mage, and then it has a one three-drop creature in Reflector Mage. So the question was posed, do you keep a mulligan on the play? Do you keep a mulligan on the draw? Like, where are we at with this with this hand? Because while this hand, like, it has the two lands that you want, and it has enough gas, it feels like. The problem with this hand is that it doesn't have the explosiveness that I think the human's deck really needs in order to accelerate like there are so many like with this hand if you picture it playing out without a one drop you can just tell that it's going to be pretty slow to develop onto the board if you're on the play then you get to go land pass and then second land thalia and then maybe you've hit your your third land by then and you could reflect or mage something but more likely you're probably just like playing another two drop creature on your turn three and then on, you know, on your turn four, you know, if you've bricked on lands, it's a nightmare and you're just playing one spell a turn. So the the explosiveness just doesn't exist with this hand. There's no one drop. There's no, you know, even just like a champion, I think, in this hand would make it much better because that just means that we get to put pressure on pretty early. Mm-hmm. And then we can start, you know, playing our disruptive two mana creatures and everything. But the what makes the human's deck so powerful, I think, in modern is that you have such so much access to a draw that can be really explosive. Any Aether Vial hand is going to be way better than this. Like it, even just like a Noble Hierarch hand or just like a champion, you really need to be looking for a more explosive hand. I think with with the human's deck. So while this is a hand of lands and spells that you know you can cast, and I think a lot of people wouldn't really think twice about it. Um, it's a seven card hand. So when I'm deciding to keep a mulligan seven card hands with humans, they, the bar is really high for me on a seven card hand because my philosophy is that in modern, the seventh card is just kind of like, you know, cherry on top most of the time. You don't need it in order to have a good hand in modern, you know? (laughs) Because the game's gonna end before you you empty your hand out most of the time. Right. Yeah. So like the 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 last you know the seventh card is often just not important even a little bit right. So if you mulligan, you get to look at a new fresh six and you get a scry right. So you're almost looking at eight additional cards. It feels like between you know your scry and your first draw step, which is kind of like a weird way to think about it, but typically the way I think about it. I mean, so it sounds like basically. Like what? Like one of your strong guidelines here is with humans on a seven card hand. If it doesn't have a one drop in it, you're very, very unlikely to keep it. Like almost regardless of what the other cards in the hand. Right. Are. Right. Exactly. Right. But with you know with just the uh, like the the idea that we need to be explosive. Right. And it's important. Like yeah. there are a couple factors that are going into that that I want to point out where. This hand has a lot of disruptive elements. It has a Thalia, it has a Kite Self Rebooter, and it has a Meddling Mage, right? So there are some matchups where like playing those three bears in a row is going to be good enough. Like if we're playing at Storm, then you know Thalia into Freebooter into Meddling Mage is going to be really backbreaking. So there are definitely matchups where this hand could be good. So if we knew the matchup that we were playing against, then that would 
better inform our decision. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if we're playing against Storm, this hand is good. But if we're playing against humans, then this hand is just going to get rolled over easily, right? By, you know, somebody who's mulligan towards a, a more explosive hand. Sure. So, right. So the bar on, you know, the strength of a hand that I'm going to keep is very, very high for seven cards. And this just doesn't hit it in terms of in the dark what I'm looking for. Play or draw, I don't really think it makes too much of a difference for this hand. Okay. This hand's definitely better on the play, but still not worth keeping the seven of. But I think that that opinion on Twitter was, like, not one of the more popular opinions. People, you know, just kind of, like, saw lands and spells and were like, yeah, that's that's a hand that you keep in magic. But I think that you yeah, really need yeah. to be understanding your your overall game plan, and your game plan with humans is to explode onto the board with a lot of different disruptive elements, and this just doesn't do that. And, and I know that... You know, during those first runs with humans, like when you went undefeated in the open and that sort of thing, like you mulliganed a lot, oh, yeah. right? You... Right. For sure. And I think that's just something that you need to be doing in modern in general. Um, mm-hmm. you, you're, I think that everybody, if like, you know, if you're not really sure on mulligans, if you just like raise the bar on the hands that you think are appropriate to keep just like through with whatever deck, then you're doing yourself a favor, it feels like. Um, but yeah, I mean... Yeah. Right, when I first started playing this deck, I was mulliganing very aggressively, and one of the things that I've been hearing a lot recently in Magic tournaments when I'm playing is that I'll mulligan to like five or something, and my opponent is just so apologetic, right? And they feel, I know that they feel like they just have it in the bag. But the reality is, especially in modern, my opponent mulligans to five in modern, I'm like worried, you know? <laughs> I'm like, wow, they know something <laughs> about mulliganing in modern. And, you know, sometimes it's just like, oh, it was easy. I didn't have any lands until my five card hand. And that, that's going to happen too. But like if my opponent like sits and thinks about a hand for a minute and then mulligans and then sits a, and thinks about his hand for a minute and then mulligans, I'm like, all right, this guy knows what's up. He's, he's going to have a, a, you know, he's going to end up with a, a pretty solid curve, right? So when I, when I like, you know, I try to do the same thing and I mulligan pretty aggressively and I'll mulligan down to like six or something and I'll have a great six and I keep it and I, and my opponent's like, sorry man, you had to mulligan. I'm like, all right, whatever, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> and then I crush him and he's like, whoa, I can't believe you, your six was so good. And I'm like, all right, well, I, I see that you, you know, you're missing something in terms of like the way that you mulligan hands, if that's what you think. You, you get to mulligan away these, like, medium hands for the potential to have an excellent six that can curve out and kill somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yep. Definitely. And especially in a fast format like Modern, where your first couple of plays are just of utmost importance, can't emphasize the importance of, of mulliganing enough. And I know I don't. I don't mulligan enough. And that's a part of my game that I'm specifically working on. Mm-hmm. So hopefully talking with you about this every week is going to gonna help kick me in the ass and make me start making the right decisions (laughs) yeah yeah for sure i do i do while we're talking about this concept i want to give a shout out to a player local to durham north carolina adam edelman munoz i think is how you say his last name adam plays tron religiously at uh, atomic empire which is my local shop and he is the person who taught me the importance of mulliganing aggressively and modern because i would always he something that he does is that he always just kind of like talks about his hand as he's like considering it he's like uh i think that i can do better and he mulligans it right 
And like hearing him talk about that and seeing how much success that he has with Tron was pretty eye-opening for me and made me realize, you know, wow, we really need to be mulliganing aggressively towards hands that can do powerful things. And with Tron, it's just so clear, right? Because you need to mulligan towards a hand that can produce Tron early, right? That's So that's like pretty clear. But I think that the philosophy applies to any deck that's trying to do something powerful and modern. Yeah. It's easier to see with with Tron because yeah, a four-card sure. hand that's Tower yeah. Mind, Power Plant, Karn beats most people on the play. But that's kind of true for most modern decks. For sure. If you just have the perfect opener, unless you're, you know, Jeskai Control, like, if you just have the perfect opener, you can crush most most normal hands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you bring up Jeskai Control, because I think that that is a deck that doesn't benefit from this philosophy of mulliganing. Because Jeskai Control isn't doing anything busted. They're just relying on a bunch of one-for-one trades efficiently to, like, push the game longer into a place that they can excel with, like, Cryptic Commands and stuff. But they really need all of their gas, right? So they, they don't mm-hmm. have the benefit of mulliganing down to, like, oh, land, land, path, bolt, snapcaster mage. It's, like, fine, and you'll probably do decently against, like, a creature matchup or something, but it's just not doing something inherently busted. Right. You're not like, hell yeah, the perfect five. Oh, yeah, right, like, exactly. So... I guess, you know, applying that philosophy to a deck like Jeskai Control, it might be less applicable. Um, but I think that's just one, like, one of the reasons that Jeskai Control isn't a deck that I would ever want to play in modern, just because it's not doing something proactively powerful. Yeah, I mean, it, this this particular philosophy is definitely more applicable to the matchups in modern where you're like two ships passing in the night and you just try to crush your opponent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Definitely less less of a you know in the matchups both with and against like jund and jeskai slightly different considerations come in especially against thoughtseize decks then you gotta you know mulliganing hurts more there right right for sure for sure all right so you know solid maybe hard not to talk like this is this is a fun opening segment um, <laughs> we're just gonna go to in talk on about these things for a very long things. time yeah. Yeah, but that's okay. I, I think I think this is something really useful that we can we can give to people um, before we move on to our main topics, which we will get to in just a second. We're definitely gonna we got some we got we got a goblin to talk about. We got a pro tour and we got a goblin to talk oh about today. Oh boy! Um, <laughs> yeah. And then we'll talk some some modern to get ready for the invitational because modern is part of the invitational. So that's. That's important to know about. First, I want to quickly thank our new patrons, Walter Moore, Stefan Zivkovic, Ben Fairbank, Matthew Garnum, and Daniel Barrett, uh, all new patrons in the past week or so. So thank you guys so much for uh, subscribing. Hope to see you in the Discord. Yeah, really appreciate it. For sure. Definitely helps us do what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but yeah, so Pro Tour Dominaria definitely had a yeah. uh, pretty clear storyline coming out of the tournament. Right, and that storyline is don't play one toughness creatures, and Goblin <laughs> Chain Whirler is a hell of a card. <laughs> Goblin Chain Whirler, yeah. It seems like this is happening more and more lately where we just like have tournaments that are kind of dominated by a particular archetype. And I think that this Pro Tour was just definitely one of those tournaments where 
the players playing Goblin Chain Whirler in some red aggressive shell had a lot of success, it feels like. <laughs> it feels like and is true. Yes. Like seven of the top eight decks are running the full play set of Chain Whirlers. One mono red aggro deck, which or, or two mono red aggro decks in the top eight, one of which took down the tournament in the hands of Wyatt Darby. And then the uh, the Wizards naming conventions for the decks, I, I think, were a little bit confusing. Some were called red black aggro. Some were called red black mid range. I guess specifically the the way they split it up is the aggro decks had Bomat Couriers and the mid-range quote-unquote decks did not have one toughness one drops in them which makes sense I mean it does make a difference to how the decks play out and definitely can can affect your sideboarding and stuff against these decks in in some ways that we will try to get to but fundamentally, the idea behind the, the red-black aggro decks and the red-black mid-range decks are very, very similar, which is you beat down, you go as big as you need to after board, you've got some unlicensed disintegrations, although fewer now than, than in the past. And yeah, I mean, Chain Whirler really just dominated this tournament. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it, it had its impact on the tournament was like very clear, I think, even going into it. I think that everybody mm-hmm. knew about the card and built their deck in a way that wasn't going to get kind of like hosed by it, it feels like. You know, we didn't see any like token strategies or anything like that. And uh, people, I think, were even more hesitant to put in, you know, like one toughness creatures. We definitely saw like in these builds of like black red, people were like trimming on Earthshaker Kenras and even, you know, like the winning decklist had only three Bomat couriers, which was pretty crazy. Um, yeah, very weird. I mean, not not weird as in I don't, we, we don't understand it. Very weird as in like Bomat courier is just the card you want on turn one in this deck. Yeah, yeah. And it's so strange to see that be like a three of. And we know why is because you don't want to, you know, you want to reduce the number of times that you just get your card killed for free, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> but uh, I think that just goes to show how big of an impact that had. Definitely. And 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 one of the crazy things about Chain Whirler, the card, is that it's significantly more than its comes into play effect. Like we have powerful comes into play effects, but they tend to come at a pretty real cost. Like, Ravenous Chupacabra has a super powerful enters the battlefield ability, kills a whole creature, but it is only a 2-2. And so, like, when your opponent doesn't have creatures for you to kill, it's really bad. Drawing it against the pre-board versions of Blue-White is pretty miserable. It's just an awful card. Uh, Chain Roller just doesn't really have that problem. Like, 3-mana 3-3 is not super ideal versus Blue-White, but at least it you know, pings them, pings any Planeswalkers that they have in play. In any creature matchup, if it doesn't murder anything when it comes into play, it's still a very real body that's difficult to fight through. Like, I don't take mine out against Blue-White Control because they sideboard in History of Benalia so often, and it's so good against History of Benalia. Like, that 3-3 First Strike body is just so real. And yeah, uh, sure. big part of why it's so good. Yeah, and the, the synergy that it has with... Um... With Soulscar Mage. Yeah, Soulscar Mage is... The synergy that it has with Soulscar Mage is definitely not something to be overlooked. Like, you know, even... Right. You know, everybody's configuring their deck with a bunch of, like, X2 creatures now, right? But then, you know, you have Soulscar Mage, and then you play the Chain Whirler, and then all their guys shrink, and 
that's a huge swing. That, right. that effect of like put a minus one minus one counter of all of your dudes is it makes uh, the red dex creatures either win in combat or trade up or you know it, it's just a big big difference. Yeah, like one of the best things you can do against the the red decks of various stripes is to go Lanoir Elves into a four toughness green creature. So whether that's like Thrashing Brontodon or Steel Leaf Champion, mm-hmm. but even doing that, if your opponent, instead of just having the Chain Whirler, has a Soul Scar Mage into a Chain Whirler, then your Thrashing Brontodon is a 2-3, and that doesn't block anything. <laughs> yeah, but now it, worse. it trades with a Scrap Heap Scrounger that comes back two turns later. Even Steel Leaf Champion is a 4-3. It loses in combat to the Goblin Chain Whirler now. Like, that's not... That's so frustrating. So, our next topic in just a second, like, we're going to talk about how to beat goblin chain whirler and whether that's by you know joining the dark side or trying out some new things uh but i i, I want to talk about some of the not chain whirler moments and things that happened uh during the pro tour yeah. just because i don't want to get any of the interesting stuff totally eclipsed so one issue that came up on twitter was that coverage leaked the channel fireball green blue deck Uh, before the tournament even started like i i tuned in to the pro tour and before round one of constructed had even started they were just sort of like doing that thing where they have a slideshow going through different decks in the format and so there was you know like a stock red black aggro deck and a stock mono red deck and a stock blue white control deck and then one came up that was just this insane assemblage of Karn and Verderous Gearhulk and Implement of Ferocity and I had no idea what the hell was going on because I, you know, usually those are basic builds, the standard builds of the mainstays of the format. And here is this green-blue Glintness Crane Karn deck that I had never seen before. You know, maybe once scrolling through 5-0 decks or something like that, but was I, I didn't understand why it was on there. And it turned out it was just the exact 75 that some of the Channel Fireball guys, including like LSV and PV, brought to the tournament. So some of them were understandably miffed about the whole situation. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you are someone who plays on a competitive team and you guys work really hard on your decks together and and often come up with something kind of surprising and take it to a tournament. So you definitely have a different perspective on this sort of thing than I do, which is more, you know, viewer-based than anything else. So I, I don't know if you have any particular thoughts about this sort of, like, coverage spoiling a deck list and just putting it out there before even a single round has been played. It, I think that it kind of, like, ties in with the whole concept of, like, scouting at the Pro Tour and, like, the value of information for players at the tournament. And this is just something that happens pretty much at every tournament, is that you can have an advantage if you, like, know what your opponent is on when you sit down across from them and they don't know what you're on, right? That's just like a, yeah. you know... Definitely. You get to inform your mulligan decisions, you get to... Maybe you get to, like, you know, think about it beforehand and think about, like, the strategies that you would implement against a particular deck. So I think that I don't really know what happened on the floor of the Pro Tour. You know, I think that if if I was there, I'd have, like, a better idea of what was actually going on. But it, it definitely opened up the potential for a lot of the other Pro Teams to 
get a screenshot of this 75, which is I think is very easy to do. Huddle around and, and talk about like you know sideboard strategies and stuff like that like against that particular deck before the tournament even starts. And if that's happening, then then the players who are playing this blue green Karn deck are losing a lot of the equity that they were banking on by playing this kind of like out of left field deck, right? They wanted people yep. to be unprepared. They wanted to have an edge in terms of like they know what their plan against the red black deck is going to be, but a player playing red black might not know exactly what they need to be doing against some strange blue green card deck, right? If those discussions were happening on the floor of the tournament where like teams got access to the 75 deck list and you know huddled around and came up with plans and like you know knew which players were on it or whatever then that could be really bad i don't know if that happened per se because typically players on the floor of the pro tour are more detached from what's going on in coverage i'm sure that they have people who are watching coverage you know can like tell them certain things or something like i know that that happens mm-hmm. like if you're ever on camera i'm sure that some of the teams are getting text messages saying oh okay you know andre strafsky is playing this deck or whatever and you can just like know that moving forward or whatever that's just kind of like part of the scouting that happens in you know at these super high level tournaments and stuff so i definitely wouldn't want my deck to be spoiled in that way personally but it, I'm just not sure. I think that they should definitely avoid doing stuff like that in the future. I think that's kind of like a no-brainer. I don't know how much of an impact it actually had on this particular tournament. Just because I don't know how many of those, like, you know, get-togethers or, like, you know, discussions actually took place, you know, at this particular event. But mm-hmm. it's it's very clear that coverage wasn't considering any of the things that I just talked about. And they were just like... Ooh, cool new deck that is interesting. Let's put it up on coverage and and let people take a look at it because that is productive for co- coverage's goals, right? They want to create hype for the tournament. They want to sell more magic cards, so they you know they want to you know really hype up any like new interesting strategies so that people are incentivized to go out and you know buy more cards, all this stuff. Yeah, I think those those diverging goals are really the. The issue yeah. here is right. exactly. That, exactly that it's just not that important to the coverage team if somebody's innovative strategy doesn't catch people by surprise. Like they just want to be showing off these things. Yeah. And I'm wondering if having the deck in the slideshow is that different from you know having a feature match with this deck in it round one. The the conclusion that I tend to come to is it's not that different, except that by showing off their exact sideboard. Like that is, that's really rough on the players by showing that they've got like two metallic rebukes and that they're planning on bringing in life crafters, bestiaries in the control matchups like that, you know, one of the big advantages you get from playing a rogue deck is like, you can just do really unexpected stuff. And then by turning it all expected, turning all the cards face up that, that does seem pretty unfair. Yeah, and I think that the the crux of the issue is is yeah, definitely the coverage team was only kind of considering their own goals for, you know, how they wanted to broadcast the tournament and not really considering mm-hmm. the the equity loss of the players in the tournament, right? And the reality is that there is always going to be some form of equity loss to the players if there's going to be coverage. That's just always true at any tournament, right? You know, like, I've gone to, 
like a bunch of tournaments and um, deck techs. Um, you know, I, I do deck techs every once in a while. It like opens and everything. And, you know, if I do that on day one, then everybody who made day two of the tournament is going to go and watch the YouTube video that, that Star City Games has posted online for my deck tech, right? Mm-hmm. So they're all going to know my 75. So that, you know, I'm losing equity in the tournament uh, every time I do something like that. And, you know, even just like being on camera, right, on day one of an event. This is something that I do is that every, like if I make the second day of an open, then I'll go and I will kind of like skim over coverage to see, you know, the players that ended up on camera and what they're playing. And if they made day two, then, you know, that's relevant information for me to have. So, you know, anybody who is you know, is on camera at some point in day one is going to be losing equity just because, you know, we have that time in between days to to do the research or whatever. But the, I think that coverage exists for an excellent reason, and I, I'm happy to do a deck tech every time I, I get the opportunity to do so uh, because I even though I, I know that I'm going to lose equity, just because it's good for me personally to, you know, increase my my public image, my brand, whatever you want to call it, you know, I get benefit from being on camera as well, right? So there's always going to be that, like, that clash between coverage's goals and the tournament equity of the players who are covered, right? Um, yeah. That's just going to always exist. And it's 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 complicated and, and kind of mutually beneficial, too. Like, it's not a zero-sum game, like you doing interesting deck techs and uh like caleb Shear talking about his exact build of storm and stuff like that helps star city provide a better product and you know like if they get more viewers and they get more people interested in coming to play that helps the tournament series in the future which helps everyone like the reason that most of these tournaments can exist like coverage is a big big part of that so players absolutely have incentive to help the coverage be as good as it can to help the tournament series. By the same token, though, if something like Spoiling CFB's sweet green-blue deck discourages players from coming to a PT with a brew because they're going to lose the extra equity that they gained by playing something weird because it's all going to get given away before round one even starts. Yeah. And so next time LSV and PV and, and Yvonne Flock, instead of showing up with green-blue Karn, just play red-black aggro... Like, that's a net negative for the tournament. Yeah, so it, it, sure. it all needs to be kind of balanced out. Yeah, I mean, right. And I do think that some sort of balance needs to be found. Because, honestly, I do think that spoiling that deck was probably... They, they could have done it in a better fashion, right? Where they wait until mm-hmm. the first round, where they want to have it on camera, or, or something like that, where they don't, you know, they don't, like, have it up and give the players the ability to kind of like have their in-team powwow of, hey, everybody, we've, we've gotten wind of this deck that we need to be aware of. Like, as long as, as long as coverage is doing it in a way that's not making it, like, too convenient for players in the event to capitalize on that knowledge, then I think it'll be fine, right? Right, being able to show us a screenshot of the 75 on your phone yeah. to, to the rest of your team is, right. is a little too far. Because while I think that it is bad for equity to be lost too much by the players, I also think it would be bad if the viewers didn't ever get a chance to see the blue-green card list, you know? Yep. I think that that's just like something that coverage is going to want to put up at some point. 
And probably sideboard is something that you can leave out. I think that's, you know, pretty clear. But Especially day one. Yeah, 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 for sure. But people are going to want to see this blue green card list. You know, they're, they're going to have to put it... They should put it up in some form, you know, somewhere, but... Definitely. Might have gone a little too overboard. Yeah, definitely. One other thing, and I think the next couple of things are, are kind of tied together, um, which is that... You know, this is, this PT was not very diverse, and we came into a meta that this is not the first premier event that was dominated by red decks with Goblin Chain Whirler. GP Birmingham just was all red decks in the top eight. I think six red black decks in the top eight, and and many more in the top thirty two. And you know, one of the criticisms that some of the pros were levying was that this PT was so late in this standard season that the format was pretty close to solved by the time we got to it and that the timing of it kills some amount of diversity and kills some amount of interest in the format. And I know that, you know, pushing the PT back from being like very close to the set release has been good in that it it definitely benefits the non, you know, people who aren't on the train, who don't have a, a professional team to to go to a house a week before the PT and just jam magic for seven days. So pushing it back some has has definitely been a good thing, but I wonder if this was a little too far, because the set's been out for like five or six weeks now, um, and we're in a pretty mature standard format at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the personally, I am a fan of more mature standard formats as a player, but I know that that perspective is pretty... I guess more unique because I think that I do well in formats that are pretty stagnant and like well-defined because you just like have more information to work with and stuff like that. But I think that, you know, from a viewer's perspective or even from a player's perspective where you're, you, you want to value playing against, you know, multiple decks and that's just part of the enjoyment that you get out of the game. A product of waiting this long for the Pro Tour is going to be that we're going to have seven of the same deck in the top eight of the of the tournament because people are going to figure it out, right? So, so that's you know a balance you have to strike as well of like you know, and I think that Wizards is probably going to make the decision that benefits their objectives the most. So they're probably you know if if they see that doing this has a poor impact on like people's perspectives of the pro tour as in like oh okay you know it's just going to be all the same busted deck in the top eight again and that's like hurting Mm -hmm. wizards numbers in any way then i think that they're definitely going to shift it back towards like super fresh first couple of weeks of of the standard format or whatever so you know i think that you know, the people that end up getting to make the decision on, on where they want it are going to be the people whose objectives are going to be best met by these things. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of change if if Wizards believes that their their objectives aren't being met by waiting too long in, in the standard process. Well, and I also think that it is a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of a red herring to say that oh well you know we're we're five weeks in and so the format's been figured out and we're just going to end up with seven of the same deck in the top eight the better way to fix that is not like having the pt be earlier so people are confused about what's good the better way to fix that is to be crafting a balanced standard 
where it's not just right to play a Goblin Chain Whirler deck and nothing else. Sure, um, sure. And I'm not saying that's necessarily where we are right now, but like clearly this one uh, type of deck just dominated the hell out of this tournament. And I think priority number one is building a standard where these things don't happen. And unfortunately, I like, I don't know, are we in another, you know, teamer energy kind of metagame where there's one deck that you're supposed to be playing and and playing anything else is kind of a mistake? Uh, do, do we think that's where we are right now? Um, It's pretty close. I, I anticipate there being a vast majority of people playing red-black in the Invitational in Standard, and I'll probably just be one of those players as well, you know? So if that's yeah. any indication, then then probably yes. Then we're probably back in a metagame where it's just, you know, people figured out what they believe the best archetype is, and they're going to run with it. But I think there are probably a lot more factors that go into that than simply red-black being the best deck. Okay. People who... You know, people who are typically try to figure out some external strategy to kind of like beat the best deck, you know, rotate it, they might be giving up a little bit at this point because they just kind of like have uh, experienced the repetitiveness of, okay, yeah, this is the best deck. I tried to beat it the best deck last time and it didn't work out. Okay, I'll try again this time. And then they try again and then... They can't do it, and they, you know, they get frustrated. So, and this is probably something that I'm experiencing a little bit as well. Is like, you know, I was definitely right. trying. We're more willing to believe that we're in a one deck format right. because it existed not very long ago. Yeah, interesting. Exactly, and right. So I, I tried really hard to be able to beat Teamer in the Teamer Energy format, but I couldn't do it. And you know, I tested a lot of different strategies and all this stuff, and none of it worked. So I gave up, and I played teamer at the last invitational you know and this tournament you know i can just i know that i i haven't really tried too hard to beat the red black aggro deck and i'm probably just gonna give up and play it (laughs) because just because that you know history has shown in recent standards that you should just be playing the best deck and it's pretty tough to come up with a strategy that you know that beats it and isn't like a huge dog to everything else in the format you know well on that note we will move on to our uh, next big topic, which is how to beat Goblin <laughs> Chain Whirler. Yeah. But this is th- this we've got kind of split up into two sections. So number one is you know trying to trying to find some solution other than just playing red black, which may not be the right thing to do, but at least we want to lay out the options and why they are options and and what to look for. Uh, when exploring them. And then we definitely want to spend some time talking about just sort of play patterns and strategies for winning Chain Whirler Mirrors. And whether that's, you know, whatever red deck you're on, there's definitely some some ideas that kind of uh, float through all of these gameplay patterns. And I think that if we are heading into a teamer energy style meta where it's just going to be these mirror matches all the time, then I think it's worth talking about how to win those mirrors and, and what what are the best what are the best approaches to it but first definitely want to just talk about some of the other things you could be playing and some of the other things that that people are trying out right now uh, especially post pt that seem to be working or at least that people think are working but before we get into it i i definitely want to note that it's really tough to build a deck that's good against both the fast versions 
things like Mono Red that, that have Bomat Courier and Earthshaker Kenra, it's hard to be good against that and the decks that are like Heart of Kirin and main deck Chandra's or, yeah. uh, you know, don't have one drops and, and have some unlicensed disintegrations. Like they, they share a bunch of cards, but just due to the speed and size differences, it can be really difficult to put yourself at exactly the right size to be good against both of them game one. So that's definitely a concern. One of the decks that I think has been doing relatively well at containing kind of both strategies are these blue-black and Esper decks that have been popping up more and more. I've played against a lot online over the past couple of days, and I have seen just a lot of Fatal Push, Frass's Contempt, Torrential Gear Hulk decks, often splashing white for Teferi, and I've been, you know relatively impressed with how they perform like push and contempt match up pretty well against the red decks regardless of their size just because push is usually cheaper than whatever it's killing and if it kills something like heart of kieran then that's that's very good for you and all of these decks right now uh, are relying on four drops so even the fast red decks most of the builds that i've seen are twisting themselves around a little bit to fight the mirror. And so even though they might have like four Hazarets, they might have like three or even four Phoenixes in there on top of that. And so having access to Vraska's Contempt and then flashback Vraska's Contempt is really, really powerful against these decks the way that they're built right now. But, you know, you clearly have decided that that's not the route that you're going to be going <laughs> for the, the Invitational. So I, I don't know if you've tried these decks much, if you've had much experience and not been happy with them, or, or what your thinking is. I know that uh, your your team you were working with was going with Blue Black for the for the Pro Tour. BCW was doing that. So I don't know what conclusions they drew, or if you've got any insight for that. Yeah, I mean, so I I personally didn't test a lot with the the Blue Black control decks, but it was definitely one of the the options that people were throwing around. I guess talking about my personal choice is that I'm I'm probably just never gonna play a control deck in in standard okay. if I can help it, <laughs> especially like as like the like if that's my angle like if I'm searching for a unique angle to take on a format that angle that I find is probably not gonna end up being a control deck right uh, it is a unique format uh, a unique angle to take of you know this blue black control deck kind of like beating up on the on the red deck by going over the top or whatever. But I don't personally have a lot of experience with it, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and and so things like like Matignon's uh, top eight deck, like I think this is what's really influencing the builds that people are playing right now. Yeah. And uh, I think it, it is quite good. Uh, sometimes you stumble on mana a little bit, but basically like you're not a Chain Whirler deck, but you are a Teferi deck and you kind of want to be one or the other in this standard right now. And just the... It does suffer a little bit from it needs to sequence its cards correctly in order to fight the the mono red decks or the or the black red decks even. And sometimes having a land come into play tapped when you want to cast Vraska's Contempt this turn or drawing multiple glimmers of genius and no interaction is is really really tough. But when your cards do line up, it almost feels unwinnable from the red side when you're just you know you think oh, okay god i can maybe sneak in a couple of damage and then if i draw some burn spells i can do this but then they just pass with six mana up and you know you can't possibly win so you know this is definitely a, a deck that can 
do work. One of the tough things is playing these control mirrors. I, I ran a couple of leagues with uh, basically this Esper control deck, um, and playing the control mirrors, and especially playing against the other Esper decks, is really exhausting. And uh, I actually just timed out one match because I was not able to to do my game actions as quickly as my opponent was. And, and I think my opponent had more experience in the matchup and was able to understand what was important a little bit better. And I had to think about things a lot more. And it, it can be very tough because you both, even after board, just have so many answers and so few threats that... You know, Vraska's Contempt into uh, Gear Hulk on Vraska's Contempt. All the Planeswalkers die. All the Gear Hulks end up dying. Mm. And even if you're way ahead on cards, you might just run out of ways to actually kill your opponent. And that, that it, it just ends up being this like kind of long, very complicated puzzle to solve that then you do want to solve via like sideboarding. And I also, you know, I lost a match where my opponent just brought in Glint Sleeve Siphoner, and I didn't really know what was the best way to adjust my 75 against a deck with Glint Sleeve Siphoner. Do I keep in some fatal pushes? I think maybe the way to go forward might be to uh, have Walking Ballista in the sideboard of your control deck, because that's a pretty all-purpose sideboard card. You're happy to bring it in against other control decks anyways, and then it fights off these uh, Glint Sleeve Siphoner sideboard strategies. But I definitely encourage you to be aware of what these other control decks are trying to do. Um, and so that, that can be a pretty complicated puzzle to solve going into the Invitational with not a lot of time to figure out exactly where you want to be. And if you get surprised, like I did, by, you know, Glintsley Siphoner and I, like, you know, smack the heel of my palm into my forehead, like, God, why didn't I think about that while sideboarding? Um, and just they draw five cards and deal 10 damage to me with it over the course of the game, and I, I can't possibly beat it. Like, these are things you have to think about, and it can be a lot to to try to predict. And if you leave in Fatal Pushes and their plan is just more Arguel's Bloodfasts, then those Fatal Pushes are really bad. So it's this very strange game that you're playing to maybe play a tier 1.5 deck. Um, so that's a little bit troubling. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, the Control Mirrors are always pretty pretty crazy. And uh, <laughs> one of the reasons you avoid control decks, right? right? Yeah, you you have to understand just like what's important in a control mirror and standard. And the good thing there is that if you're like a control player and you play control and standard frequently, then that means that you do like because the control mirrors and standard have looked pretty similar for for a while now. You like the, the importance of hitting your land drops is is the like kind of the key thing. You need to play draw go for as long as you can. You need to understand like how the games end up playing out and stuff like that. So if you you know if you kind of like have those like heuristics down pretty well, I think that um, you'll be much better off in the control mirrors than than most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. But it's definitely not a skill that I have, so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely one of those skills that you develop over time, and, and one of the reasons that it's hard to just pick up a deck like this is it playing those mirrors, just deciding what's important can be very difficult, and especially very difficult to do quickly enough to finish your match. Right, right, right. So my solution to that this weekend, I'm heading to GP Copenhagen to play Standard, and I'm kind of... I, I probably should just play Black Red. And we're going to talk about how to do that and, you know, how to play these these red mirrors. And I have been playing it online fairly 
uh, uh, quite a bit and, and done fine. The deck is fine. You play against mirrors a lot and you jam hazards into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't really want to do that for a whole GP. And sure. that's not the best reasoning possible. But I think that I am going to play a build of this like Jeskai Super Friends deck with Karn's Temporal Sundering. Okay. And it is basically a lot of Planeswalkers, uh, Karn's, Chandra's, Teferi's. Uh, it is four Karn's Temporal Sunderings and a bunch Whoa. of red removal. It's basically blue-red with a splash for Teferi and uh, just a bunch of removal, a couple of counterspells. And you use Karn's Temporal Sundering to go over the top. And it's it can be tough against the really fast red decks, but I think that a lot of these red decks are kind of slowing down, you know, not having Bowmat Couriers so that the Chain Whirlers don't get them. Uh, I don't know if that's actually the, the best thing for these decks to be doing, which we'll talk about in a second. But if people are playing the slightly slower builds of the red-black decks, then you feel really good with this deck. You Magma Spray... Like their turn two scrap heap scrounger, you abrade something, and then you play a, a planeswalker, defend it with Karn's temporal sundering. Um, the deck also runs four barals, which makes a lot of these these plays much easier to do, and is a pretty decent card against the red decks. So it, it's not the most powerful deck in the world, but it's good. I mean, it is a powerful deck. It's not the like winningest deck you can possibly play. Um, but it's pretty good against the medium speed red black decks, and it's quite good against the like blue black like scarab god decks because you, if you play a scarab god and pass the turn and it gets bounced with Karn's temporal sundering, you're never winning that game. You know, and it's a super fun deck to play, so I would definitely recommend people give it a shot if you want to do something a little different that attacks the format in a kind of interesting way. But I, you know, I would definitely be surprised to see people top eighting all over the place with this thing yeah i mean that that definitely sounds sweet and i'm sure that you'll have a fun tournament if that's what you end up playing (laughs) if if nothing else it is sweet uh i've been i've been talking with lee our our friend lee about this deck and so hopefully we end up with a pretty solid 75 with good board plans and that sort of thing nice basically i think the philosophy you got to take if you are not playing red right now is your main deck should beat the red decks as best as you can and then have a sideboard plan that is good against the control decks. I think anything else and you're setting yourself up to just get run over in game one and then lose one of game two or three against the red decks. And yeah, the Chain Whirler and the Aggro decks put a lot of pressure on this format. Yeah, but yeah, for sure. One of the ways that... You can get around that is just playing one of those on your own. Play the Chain Whirlers, yeah. So that, that's your plan. Uh, do you have a specific list? Are, are you think thinking of uh, any like specific way of building that you think is going to get you an edge here? So the list that I've actually liked the most so far has been Matt Severa's list from the Pro Tour. He had an interesting take where he did not play any Hazarets in his deck. He played more Phoenixes and Glorybringers, and he even played Walking Ballistas. So, and I, I kind of like that like idea because the best place to be, I think, in the mirror, like while Hazret in the mirrors are is you know clearly very strong. The best place, particularly post board, is just to like play a bunch of haymakers. It feels like, mm-hmm. and you know, 
Because one of the ways that the, the games play out, it's, it seems to be that a lot of the cards trade off and then, you know, we're just kind of like slamming haymakers back and forth. So player, you know, the player who has the biggest thing at the end of it all, when the dust settles, seems to, you know, end out on top. And when you're, so that's going to incentivize everybody to put a bunch of like four and five mana spells in their deck. You want a bunch of Chandra's, a bunch of uh, Glory Ringers, a bunch of Phoenixes and stuff like that. And what? And if you're doing that, then your Hazarets are just going to be a liability more often than they're going to be good for you. So I think that Matt Severa correctly identified that and just decided to not play any Hazarets. And I think that I like that strategy right now for the mirrors in particular. I think I'm probably going to implement something close to that. Gotcha. So I have been actually kind of finding more success going the other way. And that may be, you know, so like going lower to the ground and playing more aggressively. Yeah. And, and so here's, here's my thinking behind it. And, and, you know, part of this thinking came of watching the top eight and, and why it, for the most part, you know, this topic was a little bit strange. And one thing that is really important here is that these these battlefields get kind of complicated. And there were several misplays in the top eight that not only misplays, but that cost people games. In the in the finals, Giancarlo Pinto uh, missed lethal on the last turn. And then Wyatt killed him with the top deck glory bringer. But the the complications of you know like P and LR scrap heap scrounger combos like there were several different ways that Pinto could have used his scrounger sacrificed it to Pia to make guys not able to block and then just swung in for guaranteed lethal against any removal spell that Wyatt could have been holding um, but he missed it because these fights are difficult and. Uh, one of the ways that I, I think Wyatt, for the most part, through that top eight, did a great job of staying aggressive through kind of complicated battlefields. And I think that can be really key. And if that's the way that you're going to play these games, then you need to construct your deck in order to be able to do that. And one of the big payoffs for that is leaving them in a position where you casting Hazaret is brutal for them. And that's kind of the thing that has been working the best for me. And one of the weird things is look through these successful lists. Like, look through the top eight lists, look through the decks with a lot of wins in the PT. There's no consensus here. Uh, Wyatt's yeah, list. they're all very different. Yeah. They're, they're so different. And I'm just looking at the, the top end here for, for these comparisons. Uh, Wyatt's list is four Hazaret and three Rekindling Phoenix. Pinto's list is four Phoenix, one Glorybringer, two Chandras. These are the main decks. Marcio Carvalho's list, four Phoenix, one Glorybringer, two Chandras. Same thing. Uh, they're best friends and they played the same 75. Owen's list, three Hazarets, two Glorybringer, three Chandra Torch of Defiance. This is totally different from any of the other ones that we saw. Go down to Matt Severa, and that's two Phoenix, two Glorybringer, three Chandra. So these are just all totally different top-end arrangements, and that leads to the conclusion, and I think we both drew this conclusion, which is that like it kind of doesn't matter what your haymakers are as long as you've got them, but I think that like, number one, Hazaret is extremely difficult to deal with, and the presence of Hazaret in your deck forces your opponent to keep 
Soulscar Mage in their deck, even if they don't really want it anymore, which is kind of nice. And it does better at just putting your opponent on the back foot really hard and making them unable to attack you back. And the side benefit is then if you're trying to maximize your Hazarets, then your deck can be built to be as aggressive as possible, which helps you a lot in all of the not red matchups. Having Bomat Couriers in your deck, having Earthshaker Kenra uh, over slower two drops against like the Fatal Push decks is is pretty nice. And I I kind of have preferred to go that way. I, I don't I don't think that just slowing your deck down and saying, hey, now I don't get hit by Goblin Chain Whirler and I have all of these fours and fives that I can play. I haven't I haven't found success with that, but I know other people have, so I'm not I'm certainly not prepared to just call it wrong, but I have tended to want to be more aggressive and it's worked better for me. I, I just really like Hazaret a lot is basically <laughs> a big part of that. Yeah, yeah. And that's fair. Yeah, and and I, you know, I can't really fault you for any of your logic. I think that you're, you know, you're definitely on to a good plan, right? So, uh, so it's really tough to figure out, you know, where exactly on the spectrum we want to land. So rather than just saying here, play the seventy-five, I think it's it's useful to go over, you know, some of the play patterns and stuff that have come up a lot in games that I think you have to be prepared to to deal with. One of those is holy crap. PNLR is a really complicated card on any battlefield. <laughs> yes. And uh, especially given Scrap Heap Scrounger, and just be aware of what she can do to you and start thinking of ways to use your Pias to push through damage, even on a non lethal turn. Uh, like a huge part of these matchups has been figuring out when you're going to deal lethal, how many turns it's going to take, and how you're going to get there and what your opponent's plan is going to be, and just sort of matching those numbers up against each other. And tricky cards like Pia can do a huge job of like throwing a wrench in your opponent's math or or making things kind of easier for you. So just that planning ahead, a lot of it does come with experience in playing these mirrors, but man, that planning ahead is super important. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a couple of small things. Definitely... You can board significantly differently if you're on the player on the draw. There's there's kind of two main ways that these games end. The, the slightly more common way is you trade off a bunch of cards and then just whoever has the last haymaker wins the game. And that's, that's definitely a, a large percentage of the games. But there's also a fair number where one player doesn't have a one drop and then their two drop gets killed by a one mana removal spell and then they just get run over on the draw. And so on the play, I don't think it's wrong to sort of try to capitalize that. Keep in all of your carry zevs. Uh, make sure that you can push ag- very aggressively if possible. Because stumbling, especially if your opponent has four canyon slews in their deck, um, they can stumble. And you don't want to miss out on an opportunity to just kill them when they stumble. Right, right. You want to configure your deck on the on the play in such a way that it gives you the best chance of having an aggressive draw that is tough to keep up with. Yeah, for sure. And and cards like, you, you know, you got to think about what's in your opponent's deck when you're boarding. A, a lot of times the black-red mirror, especially the more medium-sized decks, you want your Chandras, especially on the play. Uh, if you're playing against a deck with Earthshaker Kenra in it, 
because and like if the, an Earthshaker Kenra Oncrop Crasher build, like you do not want your Chandras in against that kind of deck because they won't do anything for you. So you have to be very sensitive to what your opponent is presenting to you and, and make sure that the cards you're presenting match up well against what they're doing. Right, right. Um, uh, a big part of that is, you know, one thing you can do is play more braids than lightning strikes at the moment. They're just way better right now. Killing Aethersphere Harvester in the mirror is very important. Killing Gear Hulks against the blue black decks is really important. So I'm a huge, huge Abraid fan right now. Yeah, Abraid seems to be just you know one of the one of the better better options to have right now. Especially you know when you're considering between Abraid and Lightning Strike, you have to kind of like figure out what your plans are and how often you're going to want to you know strike face or strike mm-hmm. like a, a Planeswalker or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and and it just seems like being able to kill an artifact you kind of feel like you're cheating when you use that mode like you got away with something (laughs) yeah 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 for sure for sure and uh one thing that i found is that people aren't as careful with their phoenixes as they should be one thing that i've found from playing uh snake a lot and unfortunately right now uh I don't predict that I will be running Snake in many tournaments in the future. But one thing that I've found is a lot of times turn two on the draw against the red decks. If my opponent just passes on turn two, I often would not play a creature because it's just impossible that they kept a seven card hand that had no two drop in it. So if I play my Snake on turn two, it's just going to get abraded, guaranteed. Yeah. I, I've seen a lot of people not think about that when they're casting their phoenixes and so i've caught a lot of people they cast their phoenix into two open mana and i abrade it untap cast a chain whirler and i just killed their phoenix for basically an abrade and that is not when you only have a few cards that really matter in the matchup that is not what you want to happen to one of them right right Um, for sure so you have to be really cognizant um about you know, like that particular interaction, you have to be really cognizant about when you're casting your phoenixes, and you also have to be really cognizant about when you're casting your chain whirlers. Because if you, you know, it, it's worth holding on to it if you're if you might get a chance at eating a token with it, and uh, that's that's a really important interaction that you should not miss out on. Yeah, and that comes up in a lot of different ways as well, right? The the phoenix, you know, you have the opportunity to let the phoenix die to like a couple of things. Like sometimes you find yourself blocking with the phoenix or something, so you have to like, you know, debate whether or not you want to risk your opponent like playing a chain roller post combat or something like that. So I think that being more careful with your phoenixes more often is going to be beneficial kind of like force your opponent into a spot where they have to two for one themselves yeah yeah definitely um it it always feels kind of bad when you are forced into blocking with your phoenix yeah you 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 hold your breath and and hope for the best and and a lot of times it doesn't work out very well for sure but yeah i mean the cool thing i think about this format is that how in depth these games actually end up being you know despite despite being a pretty uh we're seeing the same lists uh, or the same like archetypes everywhere. Each list is pretty unique within that archetype. It feels like, and the gameplay that happens is really in depth and interesting. So, I think that this might I I might even call that a healthy format 
even if that's the case right from a, a particular perspective where a lot of people are like there's chain rollers everywhere but you know the games that are happening with the chain roller you know matches and everything are super interesting so you know i as a player i think i really appreciate that so i i'm you know i'm pretty happy with playing this format this weekend yeah i mean there is no more like satisfying way to like leverage play skill than by being really good at a mirror i mean this was kind of true of the team or energy format is those mirror matches the gameplay was very interesting and in-depth the sideboarding strategies were you know if you were on a different level sideboarding wise than your opponent was you could get a huge advantage and you really felt like you were doing it and and it was very satisfying to win those matches it's like same thing with these every time that i you know, every time I win a black-red matchup because I made better combat decision-making than my opponent or because I, I sideboarded better than them, like, made decisions about whether or not I should bring in Chandra's and it worked out, you know, it's very satisfying. But yeah. uh, it, it does get a little exhausting playing these over and over. <laughs> For sure. So, yeah, you know, like, the two of us have kind of different philosophies about how we're going to play it, but I think that it kind of tends to work out for for each of us because we you know you commit to your plan right yeah as long as you have a plan yeah i think that you're gonna mm-hmm. be fine if you're if you're kind of just like going into it and just like picking somebody's deck up and being like all right i'm playing the best deck and you don't really have any plans for you know how you're gonna approach everything then that's where you're i think you're gonna be struggling a lot but if you have a plan and that plan i think it's fine to have that plan be I'm trying to beat down and just go under everybody. Or that plan is like, all right, I wanted to play the biggest, most powerful mythics or whatever. Uh, as long as you know what you're doing and know how your your roles are going to line up against your opponent's roles, then I think that you're going to be in a pretty good spot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've been whew, trying to jam a lot of content in here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Modern is also part of the SCG Invitational, and we can't not talk about it even though you know we haven't had a ton of developments i mean i guess regionals was this past weekend i know you played in that i don't know what are, what are we seeing in modern right now uh humans <laughs> humans <laughs> we're seeing a lot of humans you played at regionals? no so i i don't think i asked you i played still on death shadow I played Grixis death shadow which is a deck that i've just been loving recently okay but you know if we're talking about that was like a personal choice for me i did i talk about how yeah like this was like me trying to get over my sloppy play slump. I right. had that whole spiel right. last episode. And I'm, I'm really happy that that's kind of what I've been doing, for sure. But for the Invitational, I definitely want to give myself the best opportunity to win all my matches. Which, and it, I might still just kind of like play what I've been playing recently and play Curse's Death Shadow. But there's a good chance that I'll switch over to either Humans or some other deck that I think is, you know, a better option. But if we're talking about like the overall metagame and what it looks like in modern right now we're seeing a lot of i think there's a lot of humans in hollow one i think bogles is definitely on a resurgence people are starting to figure out that that deck is just really well positioned right now jeskai control seems to be everywhere as well but you know it's still modern and people are going to play what they want to play and so i think that metagaming too hard in modern is probably going to be a mistake most of the time you should just play what you're comfortable with. Yeah, as always with Modern. <laughs> yeah, and that's just always true with Modern. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So if you are... If Tron is one of the decks that you, you feel comfortable with, how are we feeling about Tron for this weekend? 
Um, I th- I think I like Tron's positioning right now. Okay. If you you know, I think that Tron has very decent game against uh, humans. Um, it's I it's ne- definitely not a blowout in either in either direction. I don't think as long as the Tron player is prepared with enough you know sweeper effects and and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, even like I think that red green Tron might even be a really good place to be right now and play a bunch of lightning bolts. I think that could be you know a, another good option for. Being able to bolt the meddling mage on Oblivion Stone to be able to sweep up is just like really big game. So, yeah, um, and fewer fewer fields of ruin right now. You know, if Jeskai has almost completely supplanted blue white, uh, you you have less of a reason to have six basics in your deck. Yeah, 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 uh, exactly. So, so yeah, I I definitely think the Tron is is another deck that's going to be well positioned um if we want to kind of go back to the modern wheel that i like to talk about a lot i think in the past couple of weeks we've definitely seen a rotation of this wheel from it used to be that these aggro decks were all kind of on top of the popularity wheel humans hollow one affinity these kind of things but i think that we're slowly rotating into where uh you know jeskai control is being more popular Mardu Pyromancer is going to be another deck that has success and stuff like that. Just like the the decks that prey on the um like the the like the human decks of the format essentially. So and you know so I think that eventually we're going to get to another point where you know the big mana decks are going to be the decks that are preying on all of these like fair mid range decks that are increasing in popularity. Right. I'm not sure if we're 100 there yet, but the mm-hmm. you know while the the aggressive decks are at the top of the wheel. The big mana decks are at the bottom of the wheel. And being at the bottom of the wheel isn't necessarily bad because you're like 50-50 against the most popular archetypes and then you're really good against like the level two decks. Right. Everyone that's trying to prey on them is, is kind of cold to you. Right, like, exactly. Jeskai Control and, and Jund and stuff are not not equipped. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, so yeah, so it kind of just depends on where you want to be on that wheel, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that it is fine to be on a big mana deck, so Tron or, or Valakut right now. I definitely think you want to tilt yourself to specifically be pretty strong against humans. And out of Tron, then I, I think that, you know, and this isn't what we saw out of, like, regionals. You know, the only Tron decks that seemed to do well were a couple of the kind of standard mono-green builds, but I think... I think that I would be more comfortable playing a green red version with more answers to humans. And and one of the one of the really cool things that you can and, and should do is diversify your sweepers a little bit. You know, like the one of the ways that Jeskai is able to beat humans is that it just has so many different removal spells and can run like four different Wrath of Gods uh, and engineered explosives that it's so hard to correctly name with Meddling Mage. So if you're running Tron and all you have is Oblivion Stone and all they have to do is keep Oblivion Stone from happening, uh, that's not a great place to be. So whether that's, you know, adding in All is Dust or uh, putting in uh, like Pyroclasm in Green Red or having Bolts for the Meddling Mage or like fitting in Engineered Explosives somehow, you know, diversifying the names of your sweepers, I think, is a, a pretty key thing that can can really help you out in that matchup. I agree. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in modern. <laughs> one one funny thing that I saw, because I was scrolling through the regionals, and I saw, like, two regionals in a row that, that Gift Storm won. 
And I thought, oh, wow, that, you know, I probably would not be brave enough to play Storm right now. And then I realized <laughs> that uh, one one of them was Caleb Shear and the other one was Paul Muller. So, uh, yep. Storm bros at it again. Probably just favored to win any particular regionals that they're playing in. So I don't know how much of a conclusion you can draw from that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, that was definitely one of the funny, fun storylines that came out of regionals this past weekend, for sure. <laughs> I just don't know, like, what is it like to be just such a master of a deck? Like, that seems, I'm kind of jealous. I, I'm not kind of jealous. I'm straight up jealous. Like, that, that <laughs> it's really sweet to be that damn good with yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely impressive what they've been able to do recently. Um, I think that they've just like really figured out their plans. You know, they have so much better understanding of what they need to be doing. In, in each particular matchup than probably anybody else playing those archetypes. Um, and that's just an yeah. excellent place to be. Yeah. Like, look at this. Like, this is one of the most beautiful sideboards I've ever seen. One Giga Drowse, three Lightning Bolt, one Shattering Spree, one Abrade, one Echoing Truth, two Pyromancer Ascension, four Pieces of the Puzzle, one Wipe Away, one Empty the Warrens. Like, that sideboard is laser targeted on the things that they're trying to beat yeah like you don't end up with the one giga drowse one abrade one empty the one. like you don't end up there unless you know exactly what your plan is in each matchup and i'm not i can't sit here and tell you exactly what the plan is in each matchup but i can tell you that that sideboard is gorgeous yeah yeah absolutely it's uh it's really impressive what they've done with you know figuring out and I know that Caleb in particular is like a math guy, right? So he wants to like sit down and take an archetype and really figure out and fine tune everything in ways where like the sideboard is optimized to have the best plans for each matchup. And I know that he's really, really put a lot of time into that. And it's good to see that if you do that, then you can reap the rewards for doing so. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think Storm is a deck as well that like particularly lends itself to that because of the high ceiling on, on perfect play, like they're getting dividends just by playing the deck at a higher level, like technically than anybody else because they've gotten so many reps in. Mm -hmm. um, so that's part of the reward as well. But having the right 75 every weekend is also <laughs> quite helpful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, cool. so... So should we wrap up with another new segment, uh, our uh, Patreon question of the week? Oh yeah, this is going to be exciting. So we're, we're starting to open up to questions from our patrons. We're going to kind of shamelessly copy all of the other magic podcasts out there <laughs> and uh, <laughs> try to get some community engagement. Look, we're just trying to do what the people want. So if that's what they want, then we're willing to do it. Absolutely. We are shameless feeders of desires that is that is what we are yes um so this week's question comes from uh josh egan who one of our listeners the one who won the classic a couple of weeks ago with mono red so he's asking us you know i think this is a good starter question for for patreon questions which is what non-magic activity has helped you the most as a magic player and he says please don't answer hearthstone which <laughs> i actually was not going to answer it's been a couple of years since i played hearthstone last so. <laughs> yeah do you uh i guess i'll kick this one off for for my personal yeah. thing and this probably so my answer isn't going to be it's the thing that's helped me the most i'm sure that there are other things that have happened in my life that have you know, prepared me for games. Um, uh, so the 
the thing that's helped right. me... Like, playing playing Warhammer probably helped yeah, you a lot right. into getting into magic. So, that's, Warhammer is probably the thing that has helped me the most in terms of, like, you know, getting into magic uh, initially, right? Because, you know, I, I kind of met the people that introduced me to magic through going to the, that game store to play Warhammer and everything. But that's a whole mm-hmm. other story that I, I might have told before at the podcast, but it's tough to remember. Um, but, we, we have talked about it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but something recently that I've been doing that I think is going to help me out is actually playing Halo on Xbox with my friend Jeremy here in our apartment. Is that I've recently noticed that my ability to focus on something in particular very, very well is actually hindering me in, in other ways. I'm, I typically tend to be very tunnel visioned in my focus on things, and that has shown up in all sorts of aspects of my life. All I'm doing right now is playing magic in terms of like, you know, I don't have like another job or anything. It's just like all through like content and all sorts of other stuff. So that's just kind of like goes to show how I can, I tend to get very tunnel visioned on what my passions are. And I think that's really good in a lot of senses for me. So I get to like, you know, focus on the things that I enjoy. But also, it really is detrimental to my peripheral vision of kind of keeping track of a lot of stuff. And at the regionals last weekend, I made some mistakes because I just kind of missed stuff on the board that I should have known about, like a second celestial colonnade and like a a, a spell bomb, Mm -hmm. just like things that I should have been able to pick up on on through my peripheral like vision of just like absorbing all of the information on the board state in magic and yeah. the other area in my life that's come up recently has been playing halo where you in order to play halo successfully you need to like have a really good idea of what's going on around you at all times right so you have like your your radar in the bottom left corner of the screen that like has little red pips on where the enemies are. You need to keep track of, you know, how much ammo you still have in your in your weapon at the moment so you can like reload if you're low on ammo at the right time and everything. So you need to be keeping track of all these things at the same time. And I'm yeah, and really like, bad. Like I know in like early <laughs> Halo games, I haven't played like the most recent ones, but I know that like timing ammo spawns was like a really big deal or timing weapon spawns and that sort of thing. I don't know if that's Yeah as deep as you're getting into it now but yeah right yeah, definitely lots of lots of things so, to think about yeah so just like keeping track of all these things in your peripherals and like i my peripherals are are really bad in terms of like mm-hmm. keeping track of like you know everything else and i'm just like i guess not very aware of things going on around me all the time it's <laughs> uh, like as and that's just kind of like another product of me being pretty tunnel visioned and focused on on the things that i'm focusing on right and I think that I'm really, yeah. really good at digesting the information that I do take in. And I think I come up with like really good plans in terms of like how to deal with that and and everything. But I just, you know, missing external information can sometimes be detrimental. And I think that playing Halo is going to help me a little more with that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind would... of like a, you know, it's not the thing that's helped me the most in Magic, but it's like an interesting little thing that I've been thinking about recently as like something that is outside of magic but could potentially help you know um i'm actually i know this question was also asked on the game podcast and i know that that brian g's answer was running Uh, unfortunately my answer is pretty similar i know his answer was that a lot of what he did was think about magic while running 
and that's not exactly what is going on for me. Um, like I, I tend to work out, like working out is pretty important to me running, going to the gym. So like I have ADD and I have, you know, similar focusing problems. I'm sure they manifest in, in different ways from yours, but I definitely, I know that I suffer from sloppy magic play sometimes. So like either I like was thinking about a card that my opponent probably had and I've been playing around it and then I just stop or I do you know I've missed things on board or I've just like not realized like oh my opponent can untap and yeah play a relic and exile my graveyard and I wasn't even thinking about that this whole game just like things sort of fall out of of my head and one of the like kind of ways that this really gets bad is I I allow myself to like keep getting away with stuff if I don't center myself somehow. Like one of the big no-nos for me is if I get up and I think, oh, I'm not really feeling like doing work today. Why don't I just like play a couple of matches of Magic Online and then I'll, I'll get to the things that I need to take care of. I will look up and it'll be 5 p.m. and I'll have just played Magic Online all day. Uh, like I might have like like made a frozen pizza and eaten it, and so just like eaten junk food, not gotten any work done. And the worst part is that I'm mostly playing bad magic all day long, because my mind is not in a place where like it is now time to play magic and play magic well. It's more in a place of like oh, I'm just doing this because I mostly don't want to do my work. Um, <laughs> sure, and one thing sure. that really. That, that really helps me like refocus is making sure to get exercise because that's usually an easy decision I can make. Like, okay, time to go for a run. And then like once I've started doing one thing right for myself, it becomes much easier to like make the next good decision, which is like, okay, time to do this writing that I, I really need to do or time to answer these emails or time to work on this stuff for the podcast. So like starting doing the one right thing is like a really big deal for me. And for me, exercise is like an easy decision to get me on that train. Um, and so that helps me with magic because then instead of playing bad magic all day long, I can say, all right, I'm going to do my stuff. I'm going to start playing magic at 6 p.m., and I'm going to focus on it and that's going to be my magic time. And I, I treat it like, like this is my activity for now. This is not my like procrastination excuse kind of thing. Um, and I, I tend to play better and learn more and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, so just exercising in general and then I know I'm taking care of myself and it kind of makes everything, especially magic, kind of work out a little bit better. Nice, yeah. I mean, yeah, exercise has definitely been something that I keep have like told myself over and over again that I need to do more of because I, I know <laughs> in some level that, you know, if you're doing that, then you're just going to be just uh, like sharper in general. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can just like think, think with a clearer mind and everything. But uh, yeah, yeah, definitely haven't really pulled the trigger on uh, doing that as much as I probably should have. Yeah, and I mean, you don't have to make it like an insane thing. You don't even have to do it every day. But right. if you just sort of turn it into a habit, then it, I don't know, definitely helps me out. I'm also significantly older than you. And if I don't exercise, given my current diet, uh, I will just get fat. So yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's also the other element is that, you know, you, everybody wants to stay in shape. So <laughs> that's yeah. important. Yeah, yeah.
for sure. It's helpful. All right. So that should pretty much do it for this episode. I think I don't I don't have too much to add. I think we've gotten a lot of content yeah, out there for this I one. Think that we we did a good job. <laughs> All right. High five. Boom. High five from across cool. the world. All right. Well, thanks to everybody so much for listening. Uh, thanks to our patrons. Uh, if you want to find us online, if you want to become a patron, you can find us at our website, mtggrindcast.com, or go straight to Patreon, patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. I am at mtg underscore grindcast, and Collins is on Twitter too. At Collins Mullen. And you can always hit Collins up for some coaching sessions. So how's that been going? Excellent. Excellent. I definitely recommend that anybody who's trying to improve on kind of any aspect of their gameplay, that could be deck construction, you know, just like in-game, like playing, like developing game plans, understanding your role, all sorts of stuff. If you're trying to improve in any particular area, hit me up. I'm willing to sit down and talk to you about all that stuff. It's been pretty helpful, I think, for a lot of uh, people who I've been working with. So definitely recommend you checking that out. And you can find more information on all of that on our podcast website, uh, mtggrindcast.com. There will be a little link for coaching, and then you can find out you know, my rates and everything there. Cool. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. Peace. Peace.